his coffee was getting cold. On the morning of Tuesday, January 23, 1973, the Reverend Jerry Falwell sat at his breakfast table reading the Lynchburg News. Lyndon B. Johnson had died the day before in Texas. On most front pages around the country, remembrances of the 36th president shared space with a story that Falwell found more compelling. In a landmark Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, the High Court, in an opinion authored by Justice Harry Blackmun, a Nixon appointee, opened the way for legal abortions in the first trimester of pregnancy. A Baptist minister, Falwell read and reread the court's opinion with what he called growing horror and disbelief. He couldn't eat his breakfast. He had other things on his mind now, rallying the forces of God to combat what he saw as spreading godlessness. As one who very much opposes abortion on demand, as legalized by the Supreme Court in 1973, I suppose that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but there were many other issues as well, and I don't think it's possible for one to separate what he believes in from the way he practices and lives. I happen to have clear positions on family values, and abortion is just one of them. There's no question about it. As Falwell recalled, I sat there staring at the Roe versus Wade story, growing more and more fearful of the consequences of the Supreme Court's act, and wondering why so few voices had been raised against it. Already, leaders of the Catholic Church had spoken courageously in opposition to the court's decision, but the voices of my Protestant Christian brothers and sisters, especially the voices of evangelical and fundamentalist leaders, remained silent. That would soon change, radically and forever. The religious right would become a force in American politics that could not and would not be ignored. Guided by a belief that Christianity belongs at the center of public life, evangelical voters viewed secularism as an existential threat, a threat that has helped create a false choice between faith and fact. Now to that historic Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage across the land, and it's profound. It's moral perversion. And uh, while we should love the homosexual, we should deal with homosexuality for what it is, and that's wrong. And you know, I'm often asked, why is it that evangelicals supported a secular candidate like Donald Trump? Christians are tired of being bullied for their faith in the public square. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you. Until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart. Politics and the pulpit. The key to winning the Iowa caucuses is support from evangelicals, and that makes the pastors... White evangelical Christians have functioned as a political force and a critical Republican voting bloc for decades. Experts say it started to take... Pollsters and professional political types call this the God Gap. In 2016, 80% of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump. Four years later, the number dipped, but only slightly, to 76%. The persistence of white evangelical support for the Make America Great Again movement is one of the stubborn realities of our age. We're going to protect Christianity, and I can say that. I don't have to be politically correct, or we're going to protect it. You know? When was the last time you saw a Merry Christmas? You don't see it anymore. They want to be politically correct. 
If I'm president, you're going to see Merry Christmas in department stores. Believe me. Believe me. To understand why those who profess faith in a revolutionary gospel of love, yet who deploy their temporal voting power to invest authority in a person and in a party more given to the clenched fist than to the extended hand, we have to see the world as many of those white evangelicals see it. And that is this way. That contemporary culture, contemporary America itself, is hostile to them, a forbidding kingdom in which they're victims of a prevailing secularism. The liberal elites have done you wrong. You are being replaced by immigrants, by people of color. People in power have contempt for your views. Christianity is under assault. This is Jennifer Rubin, columnist for The Washington Post. I don't look at Trump because he was so lacking and is so lacking in any ideological framework as someone who is an ideological savior for the right. I think that stems from something else, which is related, but has reached its peak under Trump. And that is the alienation and resentment of white Christian America. The story is one of power. Just as many conservatives feel Republican presidents from Eisenhower to Bush 43 betrayed them on secular issues such as taxes and the size of government, many conservative Christians are disenchanted after decades of failed Republican promises to return prayer to schools and to ban abortion. Just as many conservatives see the mainstream media as a foe, and just as many conservatives see the courts and the Congress as alien forces, enough so that many conservative Christians have decided that they are aggrieved and besieged. But you know, to the left, when it comes to attacking conservative Christians, it is always open season. And you know, I'm often asked, why is it that evangelicals supported a secular candidate like Donald Trump by the largest margin in history? This is the reason Christians are tired of being bullied for their faith in the public square. The fact that they aren't, the country remains unusually religious, churches are independent, untaxed entities, and our public life is rife with theocentric language and imagery, these facts don't much matter. But they need to. First, a bit of history. Religion and politics have always been inextricably bound up together in America. In the age of Jackson, Alexis de Tocqueville said that the religious atmosphere of the country was the first thing that struck me on arrival in the United States. But he also discovered a great depth of doubt and indifference to faith. Thomas Jefferson had also captured the essence of the American spirit about religion when he observed that his statute for religious freedom in Virginia was meant to comprehend within the mantle of its protection the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu and infidel of every denomination, and those of no faith whatever. The American culture of religious liberty helped create a busy free market of faith by disestablishing churches the nation made religion more popular, not less. Yet evangelical Christians have long believed that America's political life should be governed by their biblical and theological principles. From temperance to slavery in the white South, to evolution, to reproductive rights, to marriage equality, 
If the church believes something to be divinely condemned or divinely ordained, then they believe the state should follow suit. The intensity of feeling about how Christian the nation should be has ebbed and flowed since Jamestown. There is, as the Bible says, nothing new under the sun. Fuller here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The roots of faith's role in conservative politics in our time can be traced to Jerry Falwell's cold coffee. The alienation first created by the 1962 school prayer decision was deepened and widened by Roe, which, in combination with the surge of patriotism around the bicentennial in 1976 and by Jimmy Carter's mainstreaming of the term evangelical in that year's presidential campaign, brought Falwell's moral majority to the fore. Throwing God off successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools. Uh, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because uh, God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who tried to secularize America, I point the thing in their face and say, you helped this happen. During the bicentennial, Falwell remembered, I got me a Bible in one hand and old glory in the other and went up and down the streets and across the coliseums in this country. I said, I've been quiet as long as I'm going to be quiet. Quiet, he and his co-religionists were not. Insisting on pro-life and pro-school prayer amendments to the Constitution, the religious right became an intrinsic part of the Republican base beginning in 1980. But no subsequent Republican president Neither Ronald Reagan, nor George H.W. Bush, nor George W. Bush seriously pursued either of those goals. I do believe in civil rights, housing, accommodations, etc. for homosexuals, contrary to what you've read. But I do not believe that we should condone it, whether legally or otherwise, as an acceptable altered lifestyle. It is not that. It's moral perversion. And our young people need to know that, need to hear that. And uh, while we should love the homosexual, we should deal with homosexuality for what it is, and that's wrong. Later, marriage equality would join abortion and prayer as central issues. But by 2015, the Supreme Court, naturally, had ruled in favor of equal access to marriage. The opinion, it should be noted, was authored by Anthony Kennedy, a Reagan appointee. Now to that historic Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage across the land, and it's profound. The five to four vote in many ways reflecting the huge societal shift of the last 20 years. The president saying today there are days like this when that slow, steady effort is rewarded with justice that arrives like a thunderbolt. 
Race is also an inescapable element of Christian nationalism. This isn't to say that evangelicalism is intrinsically racist. It isn't. A genuinely biblical view of human nature is colorblind. As St. Paul said, all are one in Christ Jesus. But it is a matter of discernible fact that white Christian nationalism thrives in part on a white supremacist view of the world. When Donald Trump spoke of making America great again, he was speaking not least of making America largely white again. To deny this is to deny self-evident reality. So why are so many white evangelicals devoted to an unchristian platform? Part of the answer lies in a sense of grievance. Elizabeth Diaz of the New York Times has written, Evangelicals supported Trump because of who he is and because of who they are. He is their protector, the bully who is on their side, the one who offered safety amid their fears that their country as they know it and their place in it is changing and changing quickly. White, straight, married couples with children who go to church regularly are no longer the American mainstream. An entire way of life, one in which their values were dominant, could be headed for extinction. And Mr. Trump offered to restore them to power as though they have not been in power all along. Given this sense of siege, the politics and the culture of fear prevails. As Edmund Burke observed, there's nothing so unreasoning as fear, and many white evangelicals fear they are out and secular liberalism is in. If you look at the forces against Christianity, if they had their way, they would shut down this school. They would shut down churches all across the country, and they've gone as far to say that. Faith is an intrinsic part of politics, for politics is about people, and people are often professors of faith. The civil rights movement of the 20th century is impossible to imagine without the role of the black church. It's striking that one of the two United States senators from Georgia, Raphael Warnock, occupies the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church, once held by Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr. So Dr. King made his way to Memphis, standing up for workers. The tragedy is that the minimum wage had more purchasing power in 1968 than the minimum wage does in 2021. The difference between the black church's political engagement and that of today's white evangelicals is that the black church preaches a message of liberation, of seeing all as equal, all as creatures of God. White evangelicalism too often seeks to exclude, not include. This is not a partisan point. It's just the case. Black religious leaders are not theocrats. Many white evangelicals too often veer in that direction. The columnist Cal Thomas was an early figure in the moral majority, and he came to see the Christian American movement as fatally flawed in theological terms. Thomas once said, no country can be truly Christian, only people can. God is above all nations, and in fact, Isaiah says that all nations are to him a drop in the bucket and less than nothing. As crucial as religion has been and is to the life of the nation, America's unifying force has never been a specific faith, but a commitment to freedom, not least 
to freedom of conscience. At our best, we single religion out for neither particular help nor particular harm. We have historically treated faith-based arguments as one element among many in the Republican, lowercase r, sphere of debate and decision. As John F. Kennedy said in his address to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association in the campaign of 1960, For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew, or a Quaker, or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart. I am an Episcopalian, and I've long argued the following. As the psalmist said, put not thy trust in princes. Jesus refuses to use the means of this world, either the clash of arms or the passions of politics, to further his ends. After the miracle of the loaves and fishes, the dazzled throng thought they had found their earthly messiah. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. When one of his followers slices off the ear of one of the arresting party in Gethsemane, Jesus said, put up thy sword. Later, before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. The preponderance of lessons from the Gospels and from the rest of the New Testament suggests that earthly power is transitory and corrupting, and that the followers of Jesus should be more attentive to matters spiritual than political. Fundamentalism is for the weak, self-righteousness for the insecure. One reason for the right-wing's fantasy world of the moment lies in one interpretation and deployment of faith that exalts temporal power over religiously informed and inspired human virtue. Whenever someone's tempted to think they have a monopoly on truth, it would be well to recall the words of God to Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Humility is perhaps the beginning of wisdom. It is surely the beginning of citizenship. On the next Fate of Fact, so what do we do now, when a majority of one of the two major parties in America denies reality? What's the prognosis for democracy? Some thoughts on the next Fate of Fact. Thank you for listening to Fate of Fact, a presentation of Shining City Audio at John Meacham and C-13 Original Studio. Created and executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Fate of Fact was written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Chris Basil. Additional production, engineering, and research support by Paige Heimson, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Ian Mont. Our theme song is Remember Me as a Time of Day by Explosions in the Sky. Artwork by Kirk Courtney. Marketing and PR support by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.